All right, we are in this uh, series of lessons about Advent and Christmas. Uh, Susan's going to kind of bring it home next week with uh, Epiphany, which is the 12th day of Christmas, the last day of, of the Christmas season. Uh, last week and this week, we're actually kind of looking at the two Christmas stories. And just a reminder, we're going to do today with Matthew what we did with Luke last week, which is not going to try to read every verse of the story. Matter of fact, we're not really going to read the story per se. Uh, we're going to more talk about the story. It's the stories that we're familiar with. Um, now, last week we looked at Luke, and a couple things just quickly about Luke. Uh, there are six, seven, eight, nine, ten scenes in the uh, Christmas story from Luke. Six of them are prior to the part that we normally read, the entire first chapter. This is about the birth of John the Baptist, uh, the birth of Jesus, the pregnancy stories, and then we have two stories afterwards. A couple things stood out about the Luke narrative. Um, we place this Christmas story in a larger story, and then also Luke places it on a, a global stage, a geopolitical stage of the Roman Empire. Talks about Caesar Augustus, talks about Quirinius, and then we get some very interesting language. The first language comes from Mary, who talks about the God that's at work in Jesus, and this is the God who yanks kings off their thrones and sends the, the, uh, sends the rich empty away. A little further down, we have the prayer of Zechariah. Zechariah then also goes geopolitical. He begins to talk about that God will deliver God's people, and there's a kingdom, and there's a throne, and there's a king of the, the, the throne of David, and all that language in there. And then we end with Simeon at the end, who seeing the Christ child says that this child is set for the rising and the falling of many. And so throughout the Christmas narrative in Luke, we have um, the larger picture of the implications of this birth. We're going to find very similar type thing, different, but very similar in the Gospel of Matthew today. Uh, Matthew begins, as Luke did, before the birth of Jesus, but he does not have six scenes. He just has two. And they're, they're very interesting ones. Uh, we have the genealogy of Jesus. We have two genealogies. We have one in Matthew, and then we have one in Luke. The one in Luke's actually after the Christmas story, and the two genealogies are entirely different. Do not ever try to make them make sense with each other, okay? <laughs> they just, it's not going to happen. Uh, they're doing different things. And then we have the story of the virgin birth. Now, for the, the astute among us, you might wonder, why in the world would you put those two stories side by side, anywhere. Because uh, at first glance, it seems like they would contradict each other. We have, for example, what's the point of the genealogy? Well, the point of the genealogy is that Jesus is descended of David through Joseph. And then the Davidic line and all the promises would go through Joseph. That's just the way things work. We'll look at that in a second. And then the virgin birth story, we're told, but by the way, he's not the father anyway. And you just have to ask, and, uh, hmm, something is going on. Now, we're going to give uh, Matthew the benefit of the doubt. He's not ignorant, and he's not overlooking something. He's actually doing something very, very important that we need to listen to. So Matthew's genealogy is, is a masterpiece. There's a lot of texture in this, and we just want to look up a few things. An account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. That's what the genealogy is. It's an account of Jesus of Nazareth as the Jewish... Messiah, son of David. And so we then want to lift up a couple of characters. Son of David, son of Abraham. Who was Abraham? 
It all goes back to Abraham. <clears throat> he is the father of the Jewish people. Who is David? Greatest king that they would have. Uh, not morally pure, but the greatest king they would have. So, two major characters, the two biggest characters in, in Israelite history. So we have this, and I'm just going to lift up a few things. It, it, don't worry about getting all of the, the names here because the names do not match up with Luke. And we're going to find that uh, Matthew, it's very important to him that we have groups of 14. And people who, who have looked at this list and compared it with other lists in the Bible go, the only way you get 14 is if you do great violence to the biblical text, <laughs> which Matthew does, okay? Matthew is going to have creative rewriting of history so that we can put big chunks of stuff with exactly 14. And the way you do that is you just select who you leave out, okay? Now, he's, you know, if, you're, if your family's like mine, you might, there's a few that you might want to leave out of yours too, but that's okay. <laughs> Abraham. <coughs> Isaac, Jacob, da-da-da-da-da-da, coming down through the book of Genesis. And then, whoa, Tamar. That's unusual, okay? And we go further. Go down, 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 down. Rahab, remember her? odd then we have ruth and then we go down to the first anchor figure here david and then we have david we can't you know we can't even name her the wife of uriah the hittite now who was that bathsheba, bathsheba. that's right uh, and then we have a whole bunch of them in there and then we have the only event in the uh, the list that's not a name but is actually a historical event and it's important enough that we mention it twice. Down, 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 down. You know, this is the old, remember the old King James, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat. We have all those begats. And then the t at the time of the deportation to Babylon, this is the Babylonian exile. And then it's mentioned again. And after the deportation to the Babylonian exile, we pick it up and roll forward again, 14. And then we get to the really interesting part. And Jacob was the father of Joseph. So what we have is a genealogy in the ancient world that's always through the mail, coming down. And remember uh, the actor, Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, the actor that did the, died this week. Remember, did, did a little sidestep kind of thing? A little sidestep. Jacob was the father of Joseph, husband of Mary. Just a little sidestep there, of whom Jesus was born. In other words, Jesus is born of Mary, husband of Joseph, and that's interesting, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. Not true, but for, for Matthew, to make the point he wants to make. From David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. From the deportation of Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. And obviously, this is very important to Matthew. Matthew is doing something with the number 14. He's restructuring history. So the genealogy focuses on three key figures. We've got Abraham and David, the, the big ones uh, of the Jewish history, and then Jesus. And at the time this is being written, Jesus would have been a relatively unknown figure in the world. <coughs> Abraham would have been known. David would have been known. Jesus. And then, of course, Matthew says they're equal. Matthew then focuses on a Jewish title, Messiah. He mentions it three times. Do you remember the Hebraic repetition? We talked about that? Okay. So if it's good, 
good, better, best, but we can't say better, best. We say good, 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 good. So traditionally, anytime anything is mentioned three times, big line under it, big important. So three times we have in this the word Messiah, putting a big line under it. This is the Hebrew word for Messiah. It literally means anointed. And kings are anointed, priests are anointed, but primarily you think of kings. Um, and so it becomes basically equivalent. God's anointed, God's Messiah, God's king, three ways of saying exactly the same thing. Um, and in Israel, throughout the history, these meant the, the exact same thing. That Jesus is God's anointed king is central. Every gospel has certain things they want to emphasize, but key to Matthew is to emphasize that Jesus is the son of David, the anointed king. Any idea, anybody have an idea of why? Do you remember who Matthew's audience is? <coughs> Primarily. It's clear that uh, he has a mixed audience of Gentiles and Jewish, but it, uh, it's the most Jewish of all the gospels, that and John. Um, so emphasizing the Jewish hope. Now, there's this business of the structuring the genealogy around the number 14. Uh, he goes out of his way, little little snip here, little snip there, and we can make the genealogy fall into groups of 14. Uh, any other history you have in the Old Testament simply didn't work out that way. Uh, but what he's saying is every 14 generations, something momentous happens. Well, it begins with Abraham, and then 14 generations later, not really, but within this schema, 14 generations later, we have David. Then 14 generations later, we have a bad thing, the deportation, the destruction, the end of kingship, the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, and then 14 generations later, we have uh, the birth of Jesus. Now, the number 14 also has another meaning. Are you all familiar with gematria? Ever heard of that term? Uh, what's the Jewish mysticism today called? Kabbalah. Kabbalah still uses gematria. Uh, numbers have symbolic. Uh, for example, in the book of uh, Revelation, we have gematria, 666. The number is a man. The man has a, a, a name. The name is a number, and the number of the beast is 666. And if you know the code, you can unravel that, and you learn exactly who the author of Revelation is taking about. Same thing's going on here. Uh, some numbers are just symbolic. Seven means perfect completion. Ten means, kind of same thing, perfect completion, ten commandments. Uh, twelve, twelve tribes of Israel, twelve, uh, twelve disciples of Jesus, and so forty, a lot, yeah. The Jews are, somebody, uh, I know that uh, Jeff Hall took a group to, to Egypt a few weeks ago, and they spent two days wandering in the desert. You know, think of doing that for 40 years, you know. And 40, again, not, not a literal number, but a long, long time out there. I'm sure it seemed a lot longer than that. So we have a symbolic number here. Now, a little Gamantria um, backstory. Like the book of Revelation, this is a numeric number that has a lot of uh, symbolic value. Matthew has deliberately gone out of his way to structure it so that the number 14 just keeps popping out because he wants you to be thinking 14, 14, 14. Now, a couple things you need to know. Here's how it works. In Hebrew, there are no separate numbers. Now, we have letters, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. We have Ara Arabic number numerals, 
one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. In Hebrew, you have no, you have no numerals. You just have letters. So how do you write one, two, three? A, B, C, Aleph, Beth, Gimel, okay? Uh, so what happens is anytime you write letters, you're also writing numbers. If you write a name, you've also written a number. And that's where we get 666 within the book of Revelation. Uh, so that the letters use back and forth. Here's the second thing you need to know. In Hebrew, you write a name, you've written the number, vice versa. Every name has a numeric value. And then the other thing is, add to this, that biblical Hebrew, you only have consonants. Like you can see this Hebrew text. You, uh, you know the little chicken scratch that you normally see under that? Uh, here? All those little dot, dot thingies. Those were uh, created in the Middle Ages. So any ancient manuscript in Hebrew, and by the way, if you go to a Jewish synagogue and you go to the, uh, the Torah scrolls, those are called vowel points, is the, is the Torah scroll or the synagogue pointed or not? It is not. They still read, which, which really gets interesting. Like, how do you know what the word is? Because you know? there's different, uh, different vowel things that can be put there. You could put an E or you could put an I or you could put an A. But in the ancient world, we don't have vowels. So what are the only letters that count in gematria? The consonants. Okay, we don't count the vowels. And they have a symbolic number. Okay, gematria, the number 14, would be calculated using only the consonants. And there's, uh, it belongs to an individual. Here is sort of the universal agreement as to what Matthew's doing. Daleth, vowel, dalad. D, V, D, six or four six four equals fourteen. DVD. They had DVDs in the ancient world. That's good to know. Uh, or if you had the vowels, David. Now, what is the whole genealogy structured around? That Jesus is the Davidic Messiah, and we have this in fact three times. So we have David being mentioned. We have 14 being mentioned, just in case we're a little slow. He wants to get our attention. Uh, we have the, the repetition throughout that uh, to make that particular point. Uh, he uses the word David three times. He uses 14 three times. And he uses the word Messiah three times. So the whole genealogy is really structured around that Jesus is the son of David, the messianic king. Um, and Matthew uses this to make that point over and over and over again. Now, there's something else that stands out in Matthew's genealogy. Do you remember when we had some of the words color-coded? Do you remember some of the words that stood out? Women. What in the world are women doing in an ancient genealogy? Because if you know anything about genealogies in the ancient world, there are no women in genealogies. That just doesn't happen. And we're going to have to do sex ed 101 all of first century, but we can get there. We have five women in the genealogy. Uh, women have no place. Remember sex ed? Remember the language of the Bible? A man's seed is implanted in the woman. I mean, it was just observation. They could see semen. They never saw an egg. They didn't know anything about an egg. So for them, what did the woman have to do? She was just the vessel. She was the carrier. She was the vessel. Uh, and you have all that language in the old King James Bible. Now, putting women in an ancient genealogy is just like sticking a big neon sign up there going, pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. 
what in the world is going on that you have no less than five women in the genealogy? Uh, who these women are is even more striking. So four are mentioned before Mary, and they have two things in common. First, none of them is Jewish. That's an odd thing for a genealogy of a Jewish Messiah that the women up to Mary, none of them are Jewish. They are Gentiles. Um, and you just kind of wonder what's going on with that. For example, remember Tamar, Rahab, Canaanites, Ruth, Moabitess. As a matter of fact, Susan took us through Ruth not recently. Bathsheba was a Hittite. Um, they're all outsiders. They're all Gentiles. So one of the things that Matthew's telling us is that Jesus has no less than four Gentiles in his family tree, which is interesting for a, for a genealogy of a Jewish Messiah, son of David. He'll later make this connection even more explicit by quoting a prophecy that's fulfilled in Jesus, a prophecy that lets us know uh, that this is not just a Jewish story. It appears that Matthew's community was a mixed Gentile Jewish, primarily Jewish, but mixed. And part of what Matthew has to do is he's talking about that Jesus is the promised Jewish Messiah come to the Jewish people sent by the Jewish God. But he also goes out of his way to make, make it known that, that Jesus was not just for the Jews. Jesus was, in fact, for the non-Jew, for the Gentile. Uh, and we have far-reaching implications here for Jew and Gentile. So we have in Matthew 12, and uh, a, little, a little strange because Matthew 12 is quoting Isaiah. But if you go to Isaiah, you won't find this. So something's going on here too. Matthew 12, quoting Isaiah, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Now, if you look up in your Bible, this is Isaiah, I think, 41 or 42, verse 1, you'll find out that the word, this phrase, to the Gentiles, is not there. It's in Matthew's Bible, but it's not in our Bible. Do you remember what Matthew's Bible was, Matthew's Old Testament? The Septuagint. Matthew writes his gospel in what language? Greek. He's reading the Old Testament in what language? Greek. The Greek Septuagint is a translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek. It's very ancient, 3rd century B.C. So in many cases, it preserves an actually an earlier text. Uh, that's why it's very valuable. But in the Septuagint, we actually have to the Gentiles. And then these are words that Matthew adds. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. So his version of the Bible talks about that the put my spirit on him, he'll proclaim justice, which is that passage that Jesus identified with, the one that we have at Nazareth, the one we have in several stories. And then he makes a little statement there, in his name the Gentiles shall hope. So it's, uh, it's not 4-1, it's 41, or 41-1. 41, 41 um, each of the four women has something else in common and something that at Matthew is drawing on because Matthew is preparing us for something he wants us to hear. And it's something probably that would not be easy to hear and might be shocking. So he wants, to, he wants us to, to kind of come to terms with that. Uh, there is something very unusual or unorthodox about the sexuality of these four women. Do you remember the four women? What is there about their sexuality? 
outcast. We have uh, a woman who plays the whore. <coughs> we have a prostitute. We have a woman who offers herself Ruth sexually to Boaz. So in all those stories, you have a little bit of something that's just kind of strange. Uh, Judah begot Perez, and now that's the story where <coughs> um, Tamar had the right of redemption. Her husband had died. The nearest male relative had an obligation to father a child so the family could go on. Uh, Judah refuses to do that, so she just plays the whore at the city street, or the, 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 uh, the gate, and basically seduces him so that she can have a child. Well, that, that's a little bit unusual, and that's in uh, Genesis 38. Then we have Rahab's story. She's the prostitute who lets the Israeli spies in, the Hebrew spies, and therefore they can, uh, they can take the city of Jericho. We have Ruth. Uh, the old joke among Jewish rabbis is, this is the verse to keep the little yeshiva boys awake. <laughs> you know, there, there is Ruth, you know, uh, inviting him to spread your cloak over your servant. That means exactly what you think it means. You know, you're making yourself sexually available, so if this is not a person of honor, you could be taken advantage of. It's very risky on her part, but it's, it's a slightly, slightly risque. <coughs> and then we have Solomon uh, from the wife of Uriah the Hittite from Bathsheba, who is an adulteress with David. Uh, in each case, the story is somewhat irregular. It kind of stands out. And then here's the other thing about each of those four. God was at work in each one of them, making sure the promises of God came true. <coughs> so God paints outside the lines. God is able to use people that you and I might not. Uh, so characters that we might be concerned about, God is not concerned about. God uses them. And again, what is Matthew doing? He's preparing us for there's something irregular about the sexuality of Mary. And what would that be? The virgin birth. Now, we know that in the ancient world, in both the Roman world and in the Jewish world, there were stories about Mary and how she got pregnant. There was even the name of a Roman centurion who was the father of Jew, uh, Jesus that was passed around. So there was out there around, there were stories that were scandalous about Mary, about her birth. And Matthew here is preparing us, this is probably one of the parts of it, preparing us that that's a part of the story. Um, he prepared us in the genealogy, now Matthew's going to give us that actual story. Here we are in Matthew 1.18. This is the story of Mary's unorthodox pregnancy. She's up in Nazareth. The angel comes to her, makes the announcement. Uh, she's taken aback, how can this be? And then Joseph, honorable man that he is, decides to do what? Bail, okay? Uh, but he could have asked for her to be stoned and didn't. So he was put away quietly, which probably would save her life. Um, <coughs> but it's interesting, when the angel comes to Joseph in the dream, the angel says something very important. He says to Joseph, Joseph, son of David, uh, do not be afraid. Reminding us, who does the Davidic promise go through? Father. Goes through Joseph. It does not go through Mary. The Davidic promise, Joseph, son of David. Now, if we don't have Joseph and Mary getting married, what happens to the Davidic promise of the Messiah? It's gone. 
Everything hangs that, through Joseph. It can't be that Mary just gets married. It has to be Joseph because he's the house and lineage of David. Um, and then Matthew adds something that's missing in Luke because this is much more of a concern for Matthew. Matthew is, because his primary audience is Jewish, he's much more concerned about the fulfillment of Scripture. Uh, Mark has a little bit of it. Luke has some of it. John has some of it, but Matthew has a lot of it. And so he reminds us that this actually fulfills Old Testament prophecy and that Joseph, not Mary, is the link to David and the link to the fulfillment of the prophecies. Uh, so if Joseph divorces Mary, we have a major issue there. Uh, Matthew then uses the Isaiah prophecy again from the Septuagint, something that's not said there in ours, to give us another name for Jesus, Emmanuel. God is with us. Now, that's very important for, for Matthew. Do you remember in the Gospel of Matthew, what's the last thing that Jesus says at the very end of chapter 28? <coughs> the last words from his mouth. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. <coughs> so one of the big emphasis of Matthew is that Jesus is Emmanuel. God is with us at the beginning and at the end. <coughs> Um, and that's what he means when he say he's the Davidic Messiah to deliver us. <coughs> now, by placing the story of the virgin birth immediately after the genealogy, uh, you're just begging for questions to be raised. So something, something more is going on here. Uh, if Mary's a virgin, the lineage is traced through Joseph, <coughs> then why place the two side by side? You might want to separate them a little bit so you're not seeing you know, the, the connection quite as glaringly. Um, but what Matthew's doing is he's making very clear that he's not doing genealogy the way we would. And this is, this is important for Matthew. Now, <coughs> my mother, when she was young, did the genealogy of our family, and genealogy meant a particular kind of thing. It's what we think of. Genealogy has to do with the past. It has to do with where you come from. That's not what Matthew's doing. Matthew is using genealogy in a little bit different way. <coughs> um, He's not so much concerned with where Jesus comes from as he or biology as he is about the destiny of Jesus. What is it that Jesus is about? What is he going to do? Who will he become? Why is he significant and why is he important? <coughs> Matthew's already told this in very clear language. Jesus will become the Messiah, the one who will deliver Israel. He mentioned that all through that genealogy. He is God with us. He's just told us. Uh, and this is where the genealogy and the virgin birth are actually not at odds with each other. It turns out they're, in fact, saying the exact same thing. But they're just saying different routes to get there. Uh, they're saying the same thing. Jesus is the Messiah. <coughs> they're saying it the same way uh, through the fulfillment of Scripture. Jesus is the son of David in the gene genealogy by the fulfillment of Scripture. Jesus is born of a virgin, of Mary, by the fulfillment of Scripture. Uh, same exact point. Um, the difference is that the genealogy and the virgin birth story use different Scriptures. And they each are pointing to a different one. Uh, genealogy asserts that Jesus is the Messiah through the pro uh, fulfillment of the prophecy, that the Messiah would be of the household and lineage of David, <coughs> which is why we have to report out again and again that Joseph is of the lineage of David. The virgin birth affirms that Jesus is the Messiah by fulfilling the prophecy that the Messiah will be born of a virgin. Again, 
that's actually only in the Septuagint. That's not in the Hebrew version of it. Thank you. Been under the weather for a couple of days. Uh, one other difference. Um, the genealogy primarily makes sense if you're Jewish. Um, Old Testament is full of genealogies. The point of the genealogy is to connect you to David, to Abraham, and back to the Jewish ancestors. Uh, and that you're the lineage of David. Now, the virgin birth story primarily does not connect with Jews. How many virgin birth stories are there in the Old Testament? How many virgin birth stories are there in the Greco-Roman world? Tons. Okay. So in the Greco-Roman world, to that audience, the virgin birth story has a lot of power. Uh, <coughs> and again, it's only found in the Greek version of Isaiah, not in the Hebrew version. Uh, for Matthew, both the genealogy and the virgin birth story are in fact two different ways of making the exact same point. Two, by the way, two different audiences. Uh, <coughs> Jesus is the promised one of scripture. Uh, he just uses different scriptures to get there. Um, so Matthew now lets us know that Jesus is not just the Jewish Messiah. He is the hope of the Gentiles. And this is something he goes out of the way to do. He will now develop this next scene in the Christmas story around this idea that Jesus is a light to the Gentiles. <coughs> By the way, <coughs> the Magi, what are they? The wise men? Yeah. Actually, there's an, actually we don't know that there's three. What? Astronomers. Where are they from? The East. They're Gentiles. That's the whole point of that story. They're not Jews. They're Magoi from Persia, from the East. They're not even Jewish exiles, you know, over, over in that area. They, they're, they are the, they're an entirely different group. And so Matthew will now pick up this, this theme of Jesus is come not just for the Jews, but for everybody, for the Gentiles. And we have this, this wonderful story in chapter 2. Wise men from the east, guided by the star. Uh, some uh, come seeking the one born, king of the Jews. Interesting language there. Um, they visit Jerusalem to consult with Herod. Uh, why would you want to consult with Herod? Courtesy. Courtesy? <coughs> yeah. And he probably also has got the resources, people who know the traditions and the scholars and all that kind of thing there. Uh, he's frightened by what he hears. Not a good thing for a paranoid guy. Uh, yeah, people when, when he got frightened, people tended to die, generally in his own family. Uh, you'd be torn, uh, told that the, the, uh, the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. So now what do we have? We've got a location. And Herod then inquires... When did the star appear? Why is that important? I know where he is, this threat, and I know about how old he is, and with that information, I can act in true Herod fashion. Um, he inquires where they first saw the star so he can calculate the age of the child. Uh, the Magi visit the child in Bethlehem, present their gifts, and then boogie right out of there, not stopping in Jerusalem again because they're warned by an angel in a dream. Angels and dreams are all through the story. Now, not three, sorry. Uh, 
and they're not kings. They are magoi. Probably think Zoroastrian religion. They're uh, astrologers <coughs> who watch the heavens and look for significant events, uh, meteor showers, comets, shooting stars, whatever. And they in the ancient world, you thought that whenever there was a significant event in the heaven, some significant event was happening on earth and vice versa. So they would do that. So they've seen the star. Uh, lots of conjecture about what this is, conjunction of planets. Um, <coughs> I comment, but we actually have a picture of it. Uh, we're pretty sure we know what it is. Uh, they are from the east. They are outside the land of Israel, and they are Gentiles. Um, so as he did in the genealogy, Matthew again connects Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, to the Gentiles. Now, he will go out of his way. For example, later, Jesus will tell us, I mean, Matthew will tell us, that Jesus is, bo is born in the Galilee of the Gentiles. You ever heard that phrase before? Uh, Galilee was not a place of Gentiles, but it was surrounded on most of the sides by Gentile nations. Uh, the the capitalists, the Greek cities, the Roman area. And so it became known in that tradition as Galilee of the Gentiles. Um, so he's got Jesus born of Gentile, Gentile heritage, four women. He is from Galilee of the Gentiles. Uh, he has a divine mandate to bring light, justice, and hope to the Gentiles. And now the first to worship him are Gentiles from the east. You see what he's doing? He sort of weaves through there. So if you are a non-Jew, you're a Christian, but you're a non-Jew, is Jesus for you? Absolutely, he is for you. Uh, so the Gentiles who sit in darkness with regard to God, we sing that, that we, we say that every Christmas, the prophecy from Isaiah. <coughs> now follow the star to the manger. The star is celestial. It is moved by the power of God, which means when you've got a star, by the way, this is one weird star. It stops, it starts, it hovers. Uh, do not try to come up with any natural phenomenon for that. We don't know of any. Uh, but the whole idea is that God is moving this star and it's bringing the Gentiles to Jesus. It guides them in. And the symbolism, of course, is very, very clear. Who brings the Gentiles to God? Or who brings the Gentiles to Jesus? God. Who's behind that? Um, as was the case with Luke, we now get in this geopolitical language, which is interesting because we actually have an ancient photograph of the star. Did y'all know that? It's on a coin. It's on a Roman coin. Uh, so you got Roman cities. Now this is the, remember in, in Luke we had, he, uh, he uses terms like Lord and Son of God. Uh, Caesar is Divi, God. He is Divi, Philii. It's on the coins all over the place. Uh, Luke repeatedly makes that point. Uh, terms that put Jesus in conflict with Caesar, in conflict with Rome. Now, <coughs> that language is absolutely missing from Matthew. It's as though Matthew does not, does not care about that. But we have something else instead. We have another symbol associated with the divinity of Caesar, a star. You turn that coin over, and what does the back have? What is that? That's a comet that appeared at a certain point in history, right about the time of Jesus. And what does it say in Latin? Divis Filius. Caesar is the son of God. There are many scholars who think that this is in fact why the star story is in the Christmas story. 
He doesn't use son of God. He does not use some of the language Luke does. But he's got the flip side of the coin. Thank you, Matt. Um, Matthew then introduces another title that would be special significance to Rome. It's Matthew that introduces the title, the king of the Jews. Who was the king of the Jews? Herod. Herod. Um, 42 B.C., title king of the Jews was awarded to Herod by Augustus Caesar <coughs> and the Senate of Rome. Actually, he gets it twice. He gets it, and then there's some question about that, and he gets it again. Um, as Luke did, Matthew parallels one king with another. In this case, not Augustus Caesar, but King Herod with King Jesus. Uh, they have the king, they both have the title of king of the Jews. One is given by Rome to Herod. One is given by God to Jesus. Same title. By the way, getting a little crowded. I think you only have one king of the Jews. Uh, there's going to be, you know, both are kings. Both have kingdoms. Both were rule. Conflicts is inevitable. Remember in the Gospel of Luke, we had the exact same setup, primarily through the, the, the prayer of Zechariah, the language of kingdom, the language of thrones, things like that. So raises the question, who is the real <coughs> king of the Jews? And this is a question that's behind the Christmas story. Now, this leads to the cl two closing scenes in Matthew's Christmas narrative where the conflict between the two kings is going to come to a head. And it's going to come to the head in the most graphic scene in the New Testament of violence. Uh, a reminiscent of something that we experienced in Connecticut a couple of weeks ago. Massacre of children. Now, Bethlehem was not a large town, so we're not talking large numbers of, of kids. Uh, there is no independent verification that this event ever happened, except that it's totally in character with Herod. And we know that he did other, other mass murders of uh, that time. We have first the flight into Egypt, and then we have the slaughter of the innocents. Um, it's interesting, the flight into Egypt, we know zip, zero, nada. He doesn't give us, a, Matthew does not give us a single incident. The only reason it seems to be important is that one, the child is safe, but secondly, do you remember? As Jesus comes back from Egypt, what Matthew says? This was to fulfill the spoken, the prophecy spoken by the prophet. And it's not even a prophecy. Out of Egypt I have called my son which is really is a statement about the, the Jewish people. Uh, <coughs> and then we have this horrific scene in the, where the, the Herod who's threatened seeks to eliminate the king. He has the location. He has the age. Um, to and under. Many scholars think that probably what Matthew is saying is his understanding is that, that basically this is, not, this is an event that happens two years after the Christmas story. Why would you eliminate children to and under? Well, if some time's passed, and if by the star you, you're looking at two-year-olds, then that may be it. So that's conjecture. We don't know. Uh, the real question is, why would you include that in the Christmas story? And it's that we want to kind of end with today. For Matthew, this event is central. It's the climax. If you follow the Christmas story in Luke, it builds to a climax. Do you remember what the climax was? In the temple, a few days after the birth of Jesus, they present Jesus, and who are, who are the two that are there? Simeon and Anna. Both of which say who Jesus is.
Same thing in Matthew. Everything builds up to this scene. So if you cut this scene off, <coughs> which would be my vote, by the way, just eliminate that scene. If you cut it off, you really miss what, what Matthew's about. Uh, so what we have Luke with Simeon and Anna. Uh, everything Matthew's been building to this moment. Uh, Matthew is doing exactly what Luke did. And this is where we realize again that, that he's not doing genealogy in the way that you and I would do genealogy. He's not looking back. In fact, he's looking forward. The real concern is who will this child become? Uh, what both stories literally do is place the cross in the crash. We have a lot of discussion about Jesus and, and who he will become and the fact that he will be opposed. We have it in Luke. We have it in Matthew. Um, and they remind us that the story of Christmas is not just a story about a cute baby, but in fact, this baby, the reason the baby is important is because of who the baby will become, what the baby will do, and the events that will play out after this. Um, and that this baby will be opposed. Do you remember the closing words of Simeon? He is a sign that will be, yeah, a sign that will be opposed, and a source of pierce your heart. And then we have the same type of thing at the end of Matthew, this horrific scene of a Herod, and later we have uh, a child of Herod, Herod Agrippa, who seeks the life of Jesus, who executes John the Baptist, and plays a role in the death of Jesus. So, looking forward. Um, Two kings in conflict with each other from the beginning. Um, and with this narrative then, we'll now move fast forward, 30 years. We'll land with the ministry of John the Baptist. And we'll land in Galilee as the ministry starts. And so next week, Susan's going to bring this series to completion with Epiphany. Uh, go tell them the mountain.